This is the Doctor Who podcast. You are most welcome. In this episode of the Doctor Who podcast, we'll be flicking through the pages of some of the BBC book range of Tenth Doctor Adventures. to another episode of the Doctor Who podcast. Just me and my good mate Leeson here in the camper van today. Hello, Leeson. Hello, Trevor. Well, it's it's certainly been an amazing, incredible journey through the uh, David Tennant televised era. We, we, I think we've spent about uh, uh, 14 episodes talking about the various uh, seasons of David Tennant all the way back uh, from 2006 all the way up to the end of the gap year with, with the end of time, part one and two. But today we're going to be turning our attention to, to David Tennant in the printed format. Now, while uh, there are plenty of televised adventures with, uh, you know, with the good Tenth Doctor, uh, there are also lots of books that feature his Doctor and the various companions that uh, spent time with him on his journeys. And it's been our great pleasure to have a read of a few of these books. Cause, I mean, for me personally, I've, I've never read any of these uh, New series books. How, how, how about you, Liz? Well, I, I, the ones I'd read before were the uh, were the Ninth Doctor novels that we did for uh, for a previous retrospective and sort of literature mm. retrospective, and th- and that was my first sort of introduction to to these books. And I think I said at the time that they have uh, in in the, the the way the covers and the way that they were presented that they they appear to be aimed at a younger market than say the BBC books were uh, prior to the show coming back, um, but. As I found in the uh, when we did the Ninth Doctor retrospective, this is not necessarily reflected in the in the content of the stories. And some of them tackle some quite adult themes, um, yeah, and, and are a bit more in depth than than their covers would lead you to believe. Absolutely, absolutely. I, I think it's the same for the uh, Tenth Doctor range of novels because they cover such a wide range of topics and genres and uh, you know storylines that some can come across as being quite, um, I suppose, more mature in their outlook when when it comes to uh, tackling the uh, subject matter. Yeah, and, and, and I suppose that's what the show does at, at its core, really. Uh, it, it does tackle complex ideas and sometimes some quite, uh, some quite dark ideas. And it is almost sort of packaged, and like I've said before, as, as like a Trojan horse as a way of getting these ideas across to younger minds. Mm. So uh, you know, in, that, in that respect, the books do exactly what the TV series do. So what we're going to be doing here today, the, the same as we did when we did the uh, Ninth Doctor book reviews is we're going to be having readings from some of our favorite podcasters and and Lisa you've done a reading for us as well jolly good I have done a reading I had to learn to read in order to do it <laughs> yes <laughs> you, you, have, you have traversed that mighty mountain Mr Leeson and I commend you for it well it's, it's all part of the DWP remit to educate and inform isn't it what, what we will have is we'll have a short reading from the book to give you an idea of the flavor and the feel and you know the texture of the novel and then uh, Leeson and myself will uh grip into it with our mighty reviewing teeth and uh, give you our opinion on them. And the first one we're going to look at today is The Resurrection Casket by Justin Richards. Mm. 
The sixth display case was empty. Or maybe it was the seventh. The doctor stifled a yawn and pointed at the emptiness. Don't tell me. Hamlet Glint's invisibility cloak, right? Or is this reserved for the lost treasure? Very amusing, Doctor, McCavity said without a trace of a smile. By all accounts, the treasure wouldn't fit in there. And the invisibility cloak? Is hardly plausible. Well, there's so much romance and fiction about it all, isn't there? You mean the resurrection casket? The Doctor nodded, wondering what that might be. What else? Yes, that's exactly what I mean, of course. No, Doctor, this case contains some impressive artefacts which came into my possession recently, and which, even more recently, I discovered were not genuine relics from Glint's treasure at all, despite the assurances I had been given. Ah, the Doctor realised. You mean by Rod and his chums? Case of caveat emptor, was it? Let the buyer beware? Indeed. Which brings us back to where we started, I think. I'm grateful for your concern about my well-being and safety, but I cannot believe that that poor man's death, poor men's deaths, the doctor corrected him coldly. I can't believe they have anything to do with the relationship I had with those black guards. Oh, no? No, McCavity said emphatically. They sold me short, possibly in good faith, though I doubt that. When confronted, they were happy to refund my money. Well, a slight smile did now creep onto McCavity's face. Perhaps happy is not the right word. But there were no hard feelings? I didn't have them killed, if that's what you mean. Since that was exactly what the doctor meant, he smiled back. Nothing could have been further from my thoughts. Though someone had it in for that poor guy, didn't they? He pointed to the next display case, only now having realised what was inside. It was a screaming man. Or rather, it was a stylized metal sculpture of a man. He seemed to be covered in some viscous liquid, that had poured over him and was now dripping and sliding down and off his body. The features were blurred and distorted, but the mouth was open and the eyes were wide in unmistakable terror. It's by Cathman, McCavity said, as if this explained everything, depicting the death of Captain Lockhart. His ship, the Rising Moon, held out against Glint for almost 17 hours. That was his reward, according to the story, covered in boiling lead as he tried to get to the escape pods. Nasty, the doctor said quietly. You think so? McCavity leaned forward, smiling. He thinks it's nasty, my love, McCavity murmured to himself, so quietly that even the doctor's keen hearing only just caught the sound. McCavity was still looking at the grotesque sculpture. I rather like it, he said out loud. I meant it was nasty what happened to Lockhart, the doctor told him. The sculpture is... extraordinary, he agreed. Though I don't think I could ever say I liked it. Well, that's a shame. But art all comes down to personal taste, doesn't it? Now let me see you out. McCavity guided the doctor towards the door. The doctor strained to look back over his shoulder, along the length of the gallery still unexplored. But there's so much more, he protested, wondering what McCavity didn't want him to see. Another time, perhaps. I'm a busy man. They were out in the hall again. Will you wait here a moment? McCavity asked. Why? McCavity frowned, just for a moment. Then the smile was back. Let me give you my card. You can call me for a proper appointment and I can show you the rest of my collection. Oh, I'm free most of the time, the doctor called after him. As McCavity headed for the door, the doctor knew led into the study. Call me, he said, when he returned. He handed the doctor a printed card, name and address. That was all. Thank you, the doctor said, stuffing the card into his trouser pocket. That's really very useful. Though I do know where you live. McCavity had his arm round the doctor's shoulder, 
leading him to the door. He'll come back, darling, McCavity muttered again, seeming not to notice that the doctor had heard. Till next time then, doctor, he added more loudly. As a hatter, the doctor said, nodding happily. Oh, one thing. Yes? The impatience was obvious in McCavity's tone. You didn't get angry with Rod and the others then? Angry? You know, miffed, upset, seething, furious, apoplectic. You didn't lose your temper with them. I never lose my temper, McCavity said levelly. The door opened as they approached, one of the guards pushing it from the other side. Well, that's good, the doctor said. He smiled, and McCavity turned to go. He stopped, frozen, as the doctor said, You know, I was so sorry about your wife. The hand of the guard closest to the doctor moved towards his holster. McCavity turned slowly back towards the doctor. His face was white. He was shaking. His eyes burned with fury. When he spoke, his voice was also trembling as he struggled to keep it under control. She'll come back to me, he said. He stepped forward, so his face was close to the doctor's, their bodies almost touching. Be sure of that. She hasn't left me. Not really. She'll be back. You'll see. Oh, I do, the doctor replied quietly. Believe me, I do. I quite enjoyed this one. It, it's a little bit of a swashbuckler, really. It's, I suppose if you wanted to give it like a five-second pitch, it's like Pirates in Space, or, or, or it's like um, a, a, a grand old space adventure. And there are lots of fantastic elements in this story. This particular story has the Tenth Doctor and Rose uh, being the uh, inhabitants of the TARDIS, and they land or, or, or fall into an area which basically is affected by an electromagnetic disturbance. So anything electrical is instantly uh, immobilised, including the TARDIS. What the story does with this plot device of disabling all electronic devices is it, it almost gives you like a 17th or 18th century seafaring type story because it really is a grand adventure. And a lot of the characters that inhabit this story are uh, modern, I, I suppose, uh, roboticized interpretations of pirate type figures. Like, you know, we'll have the cyborg type creatures, half man, half human uh characters which emulate you know sort of seafaring pirate rogue people and uh yeah there's, there's some really interesting elements in the story there's a bit of a treasure hunt going on where they're looking for this uh, I, I suppose in simple terms this this lost treasure that will uh you know provide great wealth for the people that find it and over the top of this is what is causing this disturbance in this area why are all the ships uh suddenly not functioning when they enter this particular part of the uh, solar system. Mm, and therein lies the mystery. Uh, now, Justin Richards has quite a strong pedigree as far as Doctor Who books are concerned, back to the uh, the old BBC books before the show came back, and, and with Big Finish. And one of the things he's, uh, he's most renowned for is, is his research, his level of research and level of authenticity uh, about the, the eras and the things that he's writing about. Do you, do you think uh, this is up to those usual standards? I think it does show through in that too. There, there, there does seem to be a certain amount of authenticity pumped into this tale. Like I said, because it does have that very swashbuckling feel that I think he has done a little bit of research, even if it's just watching a few old, you know, 60s and 70s pirate films to give it that little bit of authenticity. And it's also wrapped up in a wonderful mystery story because not every character in this book is what they seem to be. And as you progress through the book, um, 
different layers of the character are revealed and uh, certainly you feel a different way about some characters at the beginning of the book as you do at the end. And I think that's a real good sign of a book that's done its job well, that you can really feel like these characters are, are, are well fleshed out, that they've been thoughtfully presented to the listener, that they're not just one-dimensional, this is what you're going to get for the whole two or three hundred pages type of character. There's development to them. They evolve and they change and they affect the story as a result. Yeah, and, and that um, sort of duplicity of character and, uh, and development of character throughout a, a long story is, is kind of a, a classic Doctor Who theme. There, there's all sorts of examples in the classic series of, of that happening where you think one guy is a, is a good guy, turns out to be a bad guy or vice versa. Um, and something that's nice about the, the, the novels as opposed to the, the new series is that you, you have that length, as you say, you know, to, to, for these ideas to sort of bubble through and, and come through slowly. So if, if you find yourself hankering after, after Doctor Who with a bit more length, a bit more breadth to it, um, than the new series can provide in its 45-minute format, then yeah, perhaps the, these books are for you because mm. you really do see the ideas expanded and, as was the case in the old series, um, uh, unfold over a length of time. It's, uh, it's, it's the pace uh, of the classic series you get with these books, which is quite nice. I think one of the really good signs of a 10th Doctor or even a Doctor Who novel done well is the way the companions are characterised. With the Doctor, it's really easy. There's a lot of really big, bold, brassy things you can latch on and write about. But I think with the companions, it's often more difficult to make them properly nuanced, independent characters. And I think one thing I always found about the character of Rose in the televised series was the way she was able to befriend and get along with, I suppose in inverted commas, the common man. Uh, One example that springs to mind is her relationship with the maid in Unquiet Dead. And certainly in the Resurrection Casket, um, you know, she has some relationships with some of the more minor characters and the book is better for it because those characters also change during the story and and add depth to Rose's interactions with them. So uh, that's what really worked for me, that they can get, you know, the companions right as well. Mm, yeah, you're right. That is that is a core sort of theme of, of Rose's character. And uh, another example from the series that springs to mind is the, the end of the world, where she's talking with the, the blue service engineer. Yeah, what this allows is you know the Doctor can go off and fight the the immediate threat and go and do all his his, his exploring, and then Rose can uncover the the, the subplot. Uh, and this happens quite a lot, and is, is explored very well in the in the books. Uh, she. As is classic, classic Doctor Who, you know, um, it's splitting the, the characters and taking them off on two separate journeys, which sort of coalesce to, to bring you the whole story. Yep, absolutely. Uh, Resurrection Casket, I, I found really enjoyable. It's definitely worth a look. Um, the, the, the story cracks along with a nice pace. There's enough mystery and suspense and excitement there to keep you turning the pages, as it were. Uh, yeah, I, I would definitely recommend uh, The Resurrection Casket by Justin Richards. Well, moving on from pirates and uh, and uh, chivalry to uh, the wild, wild west and some cowboys. The doctor placed both hands on the saloon doors at the entrance to the Bluebird and pushed them open with a jaunty flick of his wrist. They flapped open and closed, open and closed, and he stood watching them beaming. Brilliant, he said aloud, reaching out to flap the doors again. These are great. They're going to have such a big comeback in the 1970s, believe me. You won't be able to walk in anyone's kitchen without going through a set of these. He puffed out his cheeks and wandered into the saloon proper, taking it all in. He walked in what seemed like an aimless course, finally ending up at the bar. Hello, he said brightly, addressing the small fellow in the apron tending the customers. You know what? 
I'm parched. I suppose a cup is out of the question. Just what you see, came the surly reply. Okay. The doctor scanned the blackboard behind the bartender's head, between the mirror and the lurid painting of the reclining lady. Applejack, Red Eye, Gut Warmer, Black Strap. He read out the names of the various hard liquors. Dust Cutter, Tonsil Varnish, Sudden Death, Tarantula Juice. He paused. Is that made from real tarantulas? No. When the bartender said nothing, the doctor shrugged. How about a glass of sarsaparilla instead, then? The man in the apron grunted and went to get his drink. A few steps down the bar, a man with a broad-brimmed hat and a black waistcoat gave the doctor a sneering look. Sarsaparilla? Maybe a glass of milk would be more to your like in English. Milk does a body good, replied the doctor, although you're off on the English thing. Funny coincidence, actually. Same accent, but different stellar cluster. The bartender plunked the drink down in front of him. That'll be a bit, he demanded. A bit of what? One bit, growled the man as he held out his hand. Twelve cents. Oh, money, the doctor nodded, and fished in his pockets, pulling out pieces of string, a yo-yo, a pencil, a Japanese bus timetable, and a sonic screwdriver. He paused. Ah, I think I may be, what's the term for it, temporarily financially embarrassed. The bartender reached out to take back the drink, but the waistcoated man stopped him. Leave it, Fess. Put it on my tab. The doctor saluted with the glass. That's mighty neighborly of you. The other man picked up the sonic screwdriver before the doctor could sweep it back into his coat pocket. Strange-looking contraption. Bet it's worth a buck or two. Or three, he said carefully. The man touched the brim of his hat with a finger. Name's Loomis Teague. I'm known hereabouts. I'm the doctor, he replied. Uh, I'm not. Teague weighed the sonic in his hands. Tell you what, Doc. How about you return my goodwill with a little sport? He nodded in the direction of the table where a group of men sat over fans of playing cards. Join us for a game? The doctor lowered his voice. Like I told Fess here, I'm a bit cash poor at the moment. Teague's fingers curled around the sonic screwdriver. Reckon this'll serve just fine as your grub steak. That has sentimental value, he replied. I'd rather not part with it. But Teague was already walking away. Guess you better have an affinity for cards then, Doc. Loomis took an empty seat, and as one, all the players gave the doctor the same predatory look. Teague pushed the chair out with his boot. Plant your backside, Coney. We'll go easy on you. The gamblers all smirked with harsh humor as the doctor joined them. This is great, he enthused. I was hoping to find someone to have a chat with, and here we are, with you nice fellows inviting me over to your table. He rubbed his hands. Excellent stuff! There were a pile of careworn playing cards lying in front of him, and the doctor gathered them up. I'm sorry, he asked. Before we get started, what are we playing? Happy families? Snap? He peered at the cards, and the grin burst over his face. Oh, wait! I know this game! It's Top Trumps, isn't it? Now, the next on our list of uh, reviewing is The Peacemaker by James Swallow. The Doctor Companion pairing for this one is the Tenth Doctor and Martha, and uh, they have a little bit of a trip to the wild, wild west. Now, it, it, it was funny because I read this one around the time that the uh, current series with Matt Smith was doing its own little cowboy tale, so it was very difficult at the time to separate them. I, I, I was often getting... Uh, I suppose those visual images in my head while I was reading The Peacemaker, along with uh, you know the story that Matt Smith was experiencing at the time. So um, for me, I think it helped my enjoyment of that. If if I think I, I think if I'd read this at any other time, I wouldn't have enjoyed The Peacemaker as much because um, to a certain extent, it does pale in the comparison to what Matt Smith has done with the. Uh, the cowboy genre, as it were. I, I found a few of the characters just a little bit 
shallow and boring and the story itself really wasn't that engaging for me. Yeah, I think I know what you mean. Um, the Wild West genre done well uh, as it was in Town Called Mercy. Uh, yeah, this, this book, sort of in my mind, did it, it piggybacked uh, and yeah, it did increase my enjoyment because I am I'm not too fantastic. I'm not too uh, amazed. I'm not too excited by by the Wild West genre, um, despite you know the Doctor being. Very sort of cowboy esque, really. He, he is the guy that comes, the stranger that comes in and sorts problems out and then leaves. Uh, so there, there are lots of parallels. Uh, but yeah, this one did, it, it dragged rather for me. And uh, although it was piggybacking on the cachet of, um, or retrospectively piggybacking in my mind, in the cachet of, uh, of Town Called Mercy, uh, yeah, it, it, this, this was a disappointment compared to the Resurrection Casket. Yeah, I, it, it just didn't really work for me as well, I think, because I, I think I'm probably a little bit with you, that I, I'm not a big fan of the cowboy genre. Um, certainly when I sat down and chose the books to do for this uh, Tenth Doctor reading, I didn't really pick ones that I knew I would like. I pretty much went for a random choice of books that tried to cover you know, the whole spectrum of the Tenth Doctor releases. And I think as a result, this is the one that I probably not enjoyed the least, but certainly was, was low down on my enjoyment threshold. Mm. It's strange. I mean, Doctor Who can often often surprise you. And, and when I was younger and uh, delving back into old classic Who, um, the titles it, it was. I pretty soon realised that you can't rely on the titles and you know the synopsis of, of where it's set to give to get, sometimes give you an idea of what you're going to get. You you have an idea of what you're going to get from a Doctor Who story. And the great thing about Doctor Who is that it, it will turn that on its head. It will do something completely mm. different. Like uh, for exa- for example, Invasion of the Dinosaurs. I ste- I steered clear off for years because yeah, I, I wasn't interested in an invasion of the dinosaurs really but then when you come to see it and you realize that, that it's it's so not about that it's it's about something completely different so i was hoping for that from this but i think i think you kind of get what what you expect to get from from this story what did you think to the characterization of martha going back to how they can uh, expand characters did you, did you think uh, she was taking uh, taken in any more interesting directions fleshed out anymore yeah well I mean, I, I mean to be honest probably no but that's probably due to my prejudice about not really liking the character of martha i've i've never really been properly invested in martha as a character and maybe that's down to freema Adjaman herself um it, it's difficult every time you open the book She's there on the cover. All, all these Tent Doctor novels have photo covers. They've got the companion pairing up the top as photos and they might have like a drawing down the bottom from the actual book. So every time you pick up the book to resume your, your reading, you're seeing the companion and the Doctor that are in the book right up there. So it, it's hard to disassociate yourself from the companion as shown in the series, like on TV, as to what you're getting on the printed page, I suppose, you, you're reading everything she says in her voice. And for me, that, that that's probably a bit of a disadvantage to start with. Mm. Yeah, and, and uh, yeah, and th- those covers, as I said, they, they, I don't think they do the series any favours. Um, I, I don't know, I think, I think it's, the, it's the photo covers that, that, uh, that yeah. yeah, that they, they just, they feel a bit, bit too much like a TV spin-off. Uh, and less like uh, novels and pieces in their own right. Uh, I think that they could have been improved entirely by having completely mocked-up covers, and they don't necessarily have to have the picture of the Doctor and his companion yeah. on the front. It's the same sort of thing they did back when the uh, Target novelizations came mm. out. They went through a period of doing photo covers, mm. and I don't think that works at all. I, I think there's something really uh, fantastic about picking up you know, a novelization of a TV show or an original novel 
that has original artwork on the cover. Mm. It, it shows for me, I think they've gone to a little bit of effort. They just haven't gone for stock photo number five out, out of the vault mm-hmm. and slapped that on the cover. And yeah, I, I, I agree with you. I think these novels would benefit greatly by having like full artwork covers. But I, I can see why they've done it, perhaps, because you know they want people you know walking into what wh smiths or book world or or whatever bookstore you might inhabit or they're seeing the cover online and they want that instant recognition and go ah that's a 10th doctor novel i'll buy that um maybe the artwork covers mightn't give them that sort of instant recognition yeah yeah i, I know what you mean but i think they could they could perhaps afford to be a bit braver with that with that now the show is so well established but but they are still going down the route of, of uh you know say having the photo covers uh tied into the brand uh, but mm. it, it, it kind of, because the, these books, when, when you delve into them, they, they, they go off, as you say, in some interesting, uh, interesting sort of avenues, uh, and explore different things to the TV show. In some cases, sometimes they're a bit run of the mill, but it, if they had their own covers in their own right, then, you know, people could read them, uh, around the pool, you know, without being embarrassed, embarrassed. <laughs> <laughs> do, you, do you ever have that? Do you, no, you, you read things on electronically, don't you? But sometimes I would feel a little bit uncomfortable, and I don't mind admitting it, uh, with, with a Doctor Who book, you know, that that looks like the the cover of the Peacemaker I'm looking at now. Uh, people would think, why is that middle aged man reading a kids book? True, true. I, mean, I, I I suppose there is a little bit of that stigma, isn't there? And yes, I do read a lot of my books electronically. So, I um, mean, apart from the initial opening of the file when you're sitting on a train or a bus or whatever, uh, Mm. people really have to look closely to see what you're reading to to figure out you're reading a Doctor Who book. So it's different Mm. to reading like a proper physical paperback, I suppose. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, maybe I should get myself one of these readers and I could overcome my, uh, my fear. Oh, you should. I mean, when you're sitting out by the pool, there's nothing better than sitting there with a Kindle. Being terrified that some kid might bomb into the pool and splash it. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you, you can't you can't lay a Kindle out next to the Sun Lounger to dry out, can you? <laughs> All right, the next book in our uh, Tenth Doctor book reviewing Lollapalooza. What will it be? We'll have a, we'll have a look at the Doctor Trap by Simon Messingham. The lights were destroyed, so was the heating, in the ruins of an old control room with the last of the survivors sealing up the doors for a hopeless last stand. Donna felt the temperature drop with a purpose. Her breath steamed out. The monster had destroyed the emergency generator. Now if it didn't kill them, the Antarctic weather would. She heard a shout. Donna! The doctor, where? The creature slammed against the barricade. White-faced men held fast. Yelling out as they soaked up the blows, the metal door bulged like soap. Doctor? Donna looked around the ruined room, stuck for a way out. Where are you when I need you? Down here. She looked and saw him waggling his fingers at her. He was lying under a metal grill in an air duct in the torn floor. Doctor! The doctor grinned. That's me. She sighed with relief. Of course, he had a plan. He always did. She squatted and yanked the grill open. Behind her, the door crunched open an inch. A squelchy tentacle squeezed into the gap. The screaming and firing began again. Let's get out of here, said the doctor. I'm the fracas. Get in. Relieved, Donna lowered herself. Wait a minute, she said. The doctor had already inched along the duct. 
We don't have a minute, came his muffled voice. What about the snowcap people? That thing's going to get all of them. He shook his head and shrugged. Yeah, I know. We did everything we could. That can't be right. She looked at the doctor. This ain't Pompeii. We don't just leave them. This isn't some we-can't-muck-about-with-history thing. He appeared to consider her words. You're right. Hold on. I've got this machine that has the measure of the monster. I'll give it to you. She heard a sound of metal being torn apart. Help! Help us! yelled a desperate voice. What machine? she asked. We have to hurry. The doctor was as irritatingly cool as ever. A sonic field generator. Lure the monster in and BAM! Trapped in a sound field. Got it right here in my hand. Donna thought for a second. Sounds good. What do you want me to do? Just grab it and press the button. The doctor wiggled, eventually pushing her way what looked to Donna like a small bracelet. That should sort everything out. Donna smiled. I knew you could do it. You always do. He looked coy. Yeah. Donna grabbed the bracelet off him, pressed the button, and everything in her world went dark. The Doctor Trap by Simon Messingham. Uh, the positives, it has going for it. It has my favourite Tenth Doctor companion pairing with the Tenth Doctor and Donna Noble. So that, that really has it going for it to start with. But what Simon's done with this story is, I don't know, it, it's perplexing. It really is. What, what, what the blurb offers you is this smoke and mirrors type of story where we have this grand uh, master plan on the behalf of this gentleman who's so eccentric he dresses up like an 18th century fop and, you know, has, has this vast acre mansion and uh, he, he can basically will things into existence with his mind, basically. He, he has the technology. So it's this weird mixture of um, modern or, or futuristic technology mixed with this eccentricity where he takes on these uh, uh, period pieces from the 18th century Earth. But... Oh, this this story really, really confused me. The problem it has is that he's created this double of the Doctor that is going to be used to trap the real Doctor. Basically, he's assembled Darth Vader style, these uh, assortment of bounty hunters to track down the Doctor. In this book, Simon has, has set up that the Doctor is the ultimate prize for a bounty hunter, that you know, so many have failed in the past to, to try and capture and defeat and kill him, that he, he is considered you know, you know, the ultimate goal of any serious professional bounty hunter. So the, the, the main character in the story has brought them all together with, with the promise of a great glittering prize at the end if, if they manage to capture and kill the Doctor. That bit I could kind of work with. But then you've got, he's also created this clone of the Doctor. Don't ask me how he's done it or why he's done it, but we have a clone of the Doctor roaming around. And so once the story puts the clone and the Doctor together and they start swapping places pretty much every second page, that's where the story kind of lost me. Um, I, I was really into it at the beginning with, with this sort of, you know, predator, alien type feel with, you know, with the Doctor being hunted across this uh, uh, landscape. But then they added in all these other elements that just totally put me off reading the rest of the book. Yeah, and it becomes a bit like the, you know, the, the cup and ball trick. You're constantly trying to, is that the real Doctor? Is this the real Doctor? What storyline are we on now? Exactly. I, I, I don't think it's written well enough for you to realise at any point in the book what Doctor you've actually got in front of you in terms of the story. Because... Both doctors, both the clone and the real one, uh, uh, 
doing various things to try and confuse the situation. Uh, you know, the doctor's trying to save his life. The other doctor's trying to impersonate the other doctor. Then it's uh, then at some points you have the real doctor impersonating the clone doctor to save the real doctor. Um, I don't think Simon's really nailed it on the head in terms of giving us that distinction between what's going on and and providing a cohesive story as a result. Mm, yeah, it's a bit of a, a bit of a mind bender, really. Uh, what do you think to the characterization of the the tenth doctor? We haven't we haven't talked about this. Sometimes you can read um, books where you have to really kind of struggle to see that that is the is the doctor character, and sometimes you read books where you know the words just fly yeah. off the page, yeah. and you can hear David Tennant or Matt Smith speaking them in your head. How, how do you think uh, Simon Messingham sort of nailed the characterization? I think it goes back to the way he set up the story that we have this duplicate of the Doctor roaming around as well that is also providing his impersonation of the Doctor. Um, it's difficult then for a story to give you a Doctor that's truly the Doctor, if that makes any sense, because not only has he got to provide a good Tenth Doctor characterization, he has to try, and I really mean try, and provide the clone with its own distinct personality while also making it a duplicate of the 10th Doctor. Um, so I think any attempts to, I don't know, provide a bit of realism or, or, or faithful reproduction of the 10th Doctor character kind of get it lost in the mix with the story that Simon's trying to present. Yeah, yeah this uh, this could be summed up by it's, it's a... It was a grand plan that, that in the execution became a, a bit muddled and a bit confusing. Yeah, I, I was on board with the book for probably the first 100 pages. But then it, it really started losing me. And for me, I'm not the kind of person that intensely reads a book. I, I will sit there on the train, you know, heading to work or, you know, read for 10 or 15 minutes before going to bed. I find it very difficult if a story can't keep me going, if I just want to pick it up for 10 or 15 minutes and read, you know, 20 or 30 pages. Mm. If a story can't keep me going in those short bursts, then it doesn't give me any... I don't know, reason to pick it up again and keep going. That's it. Life is such nowadays that, you know, um, reading in you know, bite-sized portions on uh, as you commute to work is is almost the norm. I mean, uh, I think very few of us go to bed at night like Morecambe and Wise and uh, and sit in bed and, <laughs> and you know, read, read our separate books. Uh, that I think more and more people are just reading snatches of things. And and on the whole, these, uh, these Doctor Who novelisations are... Um, are quite good for that because some of them they're, they're not too in depth. They're not they're, you're not reading uh, Gabriel mm, Marcia mm. Marquez. It's uh, you know it, they are good sort of romps. But you know there are some and maybe maybe if I'd given this one a bit more of a go and I and I'd sat and given it the time it deserved in a in a darkened room with a with a reading lamp, um, maybe I would have got more out of it. Um, but it just goes to show that the um, you know the, the breadth and the, and the different styles of books that you can get in these ranges, you can get books that that have got perhaps a bit more of a plot that you have to pay attention to, that you have to you have to give a bit of yourself to get a bit back. Yeah. And you and you do get other books that are just just fun romps that you can you can dip in and out of and and still get a lot of enjoyment out of. I think to a book like this would have worked fantastically, um, you know, back in the 90s when they were producing books in the New Adventure range and the BBC book range, which were definitely targeted at the older fan. Back when mm. those were produced, the only fans that were there were the ones that had been there since the 60s and 70s, like myself. Um, you mm. know, you weren't getting a lot of younger viewers back in 1996 reading a Doctor Who book. This book mm. probably would have worked better back then and it probably could have even benefited by being made more complex and convoluted but when you've got a platform that's aimed at what 
what are we going to say, nine to 14-year-old or something like that, you know, mm. pl- plucking a few random years out of my head. Um, books like The Doctor Trap, I think, are a little bit too complex for the young kiddies. Mm. I mean, that, that might sound patronising, but um, I, I'm not sure that a young child, certainly of my son's age, say 13, is going to get a lot out of The Doctor Trap. Yeah, well, I suppose it's nice to have these, these sorts of novels within the range to sort of to have that hook, uh, for, because there, there will be kids uh, out there that are reading beyond their years uh, and are hankering after, uh, after sort of more, more meaty stories. So it's nice to have that one every now and again that will, that will give them the hook into, into reading something a bit more complex, a bit deeper. What what I'd love to know actually is whether the older viewers of Doctor Who are actually reading these stories because that's pretty much the only choice you get if you want to read something uh, featuring the tenth or ninth or eleventh Doctor. You have to go to the BBC books range, which are targeted at younger people. Um, are these books satisfying some of our older listeners, or are they expecting a little bit more? Or you know, sh- should they be more adult? Should there be a different range devoted to you know the more mature? Fan. Well, well, of course there is, Trev. I mean, uh, they uh, started with the coming of the Terrorfiles, didn't it, by Michael Moorcock, and that, that was an attempt to to write, uh, you know, proper novels for for an older for an mm. older market, uh, and and that and that sort of worked with some sort of limited success. I, I enjoyed it, uh, but I enjoyed it as a Michael Moorcock novel. It was it was very much one of his novels with the Doctor sort of crammed into it, um, and I believe he'd written that one prior to uh, the he he'd started working on the characterisation of things before he'd seen. Uh, how the Doctor was going to be portrayed on the screen. So uh, as we were talking about the characters leaping off the page, it, it didn't work so well in that. Uh, and then they carried it on with The Silent Stars Go By by Dan Abnett, which which works a lot better uh, in terms of the characterization and feels a lot more like a Doctor Who story. So I mean, they are going down that road. And we have The Wheel of Ice mm. now with, with the second Doctor. Still very few and far between, though, aren't they? I mean, there, there should be more of them. Mm. There really should. Mm. I, I, I think it sort of depends on how, how successful they are as to, as to how many more they do. But uh, The Wheel of Ice is, uh, is worth a look. Oh, well, there you go. Actually, Lisa, it's funny you mentioned Dan Abnett because Ian and Michelle have uh, had a listen to a Doctor Who audiobook featuring the 10th Doctor written by uh, Dan. And it's called The Last Voyage. So over to uh, Ian and Michelle. This week, Michelle and myself are moving away from Big Finish for a change and looking at The Last Voyage by Dan Abnett, a BBC audio drama starring David Tennant as the Tenth Doctor. Human beings are travelling using a new pan-dimensional travel technology for the first time and things aren't going according to plan, but then the Doctor turns up to try and help save the day. Well, this struck me, and, and I have to admit, I was listening to it here in July, and you know how you get those summer reading lists that you're supposed to take to the beach, to something something light that isn't too heavy, uh, but is a lot of fun? That's how I felt about this one. I really enjoyed it. I smiled a lot. This is not something that, that delves the depths of the human condition, uh, but it is, of course, read by David Tennant, who is extraordinary, and, and you know one could listen to on and on and on. Uh, but it, I found this one to be a whole lot of fun. What did you make of it? I've actually listened to this twice. The first time was a couple of years ago, before I was involved with the DWP or had ever listened to Big Finish. And I got it as a CD to listen on a car journey with my kids. And at the time, I can remember not being massively engaged by it. But coming back to it this time and listening, I was really, really impressed. It's slightly different from most of the big finishes we listen to, in that it's more of an audio book, 
with Tennant kind of narrating the story to us. But then he drops into character for his pieces and for the other characters' pieces when they, when they're talking. And his performance, as you say, was absolutely brilliant. I mean, as, as you would expect, he's pitch perfect for the Tenth Doctor. But it's not just in his voices; it's the the script that he's been given. Dan's really nailed the lines you expect and the attitude you expect. And then when David puts his voice on top of that, it really was straight out of the main range TV series and was really, really enjoyable. The cosmos is a funny old place. Things appear and disappear all the time. You'd be amazed. One moment the thing's there, and then next it's not. And then, pop, it's back again, and none the worse for wear. Really? Oh, yes, he said. It's nothing to be worried about. Take me. I'm always vanishing. It's difficult to stop me doing it, to be honest. Here one minute, gone the next, and it's never done me any harm. She stared at him, not sure what to see. He leaned forward and straightened her winged helmet. That's a terrific hat. But then, for all the other voices that David is doing, and he's doing them all by himself, it's a a one-hander, this, he manages to put a different character on every single accent that he's doing. And some of them are a touch strained. Um, The companion for the story, Sugar Macaulay, who uh, is this sort of um, uh, American waitress, it's... Uh, it's something of an acquired taste, I guess, but they all work very, very well, and at no point do you lose track of who's talking and what's going on. And it's a very enjoyable story. It just rolls along with some great descriptions, some great threats, and it's very enjoyable. I found the same thing to be true in terms of the of the humour. Now, this is a, a, a passenger liner, if you will, although it's a interstitial transposition vehicle, so a little bit fancier. This is set in the relatively far future, uh, and... I was a little annoyed by Sugar's voice. I thought, oh, my goodness, is he trying to do a a New York voice? But uh, finally I decided, you know, this is a few thousand years in the future. Maybe the accents have have changed a little bit, and I I forgave it. By the end, I was just enjoying them all. It's really extraordinary, the number of different voices that he was doing. There was also a, a current of humor that led through this. Sometimes when things get too funny, it can come across as, as overly silly, but I thought this was a great balance. There were some dark aspects to this, too, but humor that, that ran along. In fact, when in talking about the dark aspects, the creatures as they were described in this and as Tennant performed it, were really pretty grotesque. I'm curious, your your boys are pretty young, as I remember. What did they think of this? They didn't make any particular comment on that. I think that, yes, they some of the descriptions are a touch uh, shocking, um, but then compared to having the angels coming at you on the TV screen, I think <laughs> they're, they're, they're not quite that scary. Sugar skidded to a halt beside them. I just heard something call my name too, Doctor, she said making a gesture that seemed to encompass the entire world around them. They're closing in, said the doctor. Who are? asked Lincoln. There was a shriek. It made them all jump. It cut clean through the echo of voices circling them. The shriek had come from Bortnik, who had finally caught up with them. He was ashen-faced and pointing with a wobbling finger. What in the name of God is that? he exclaimed. The doctor knew what he'd seen even before he turned. Ten metres away, an oily, roiling sphere of glassy matter had appeared in mid-air, hovering at chest height. Its mercurial spin increased, and it began to swell. Blood leaked into it. Here comes another one, murmured Sugar. Another what? exclaimed Bortnik. Another what, exactly? 
the, the humour elements were very much of the era of the Tenth Doctor, and this, you know, they, they say the Big Finish really tries to capture the sound of the era that it's supposed to be doing, and I think this does exactly that for the Tenth Doctor's era, that, that the lines that uh, the Doctor comes out with and the way he engages with the characters uh, and the, sort of the quips and the banter was absolutely bang on exactly the kind of stuff you saw in the series, and that, I suppose, to a certain degree, depends on your view of the Tenth Doctor. I know that some people are not a huge fan of his portrayal. I really enjoy it, and I really enjoy David Tennant, so I thought this was very, very good. The plot was a good, solid story. It moves from place to place at a good rate. There's an interesting backstory going on. It's very well structured, and it doesn't become a runaround, but neither does it become too bound in one particular place. And all in all, it was... Um, a really satisfying way to spend a couple of hours. It's quite a long audio, but at no time did it feel padded or overlong, and I would just generally recommend it, to be honest with you. I agree with you. This was a really nice chance to go back and revisit the Tenth Doctor era and some of the some of the better elements of it. Uh, lighthearted and fun. What I was thinking as I was getting towards the end of this is that I really hope that one of these days the licensing between the BBC and Big Finish could perhaps be moved along so that we could hear David Tennant come and do some Big Finish audios because he did such a, a strong performance. I would just love to hear what he could do with the Big Finish. Oh, that would be fantastic. Good idea. Campaign starts here. And on to our fourth and final book, The Sting of the Zygons, by Stephen Cole. As they turned the next corner, the doctor slowed the car further. A policeman on a black, shiny bicycle was blocking a dirt track leading off from the roadside. His uniform was smart, with brass buttons dazzling to the eye. He wore a moustache like a clothes brush beneath his red nose. Uh, you'll have to back up, said the policeman in a thick northern accent. This road is closed. Good, I'm glad. Can't be too careful, the doctor informed him. Don't want just anyone getting down there to see the monster, eh? We're with Lord Hailston. Victor stood up in the back. Tell him Lord Meredith to arrive with the experts from London. The policeman looked doubtfully at Martha. Oh, experts, is it? Tell you what, said the doctor, jumping from the car, his coattails flapping. We'll tell him ourselves. He pushed past the policeman. This way? You can't go down there, the policeman protested. And you can't come after us, Martha informed him, putting on her most genteel tones as she hurried after the doctor. I mean, wouldn't do to leave the road unguarded, would it? The policeman was left gaping as Victor gave him a cheery wave and followed them down the footpath. Good work, said Victor, chuckling to himself. I knew from the first we'd get along. Ah, doctor, such a pity you're not a hunting man. The doctor's hands were shoved deep in his pockets as he strode along. Oh... I never said that. They moved quickly down the quiet track. Sheep and cattle watched them languidly from adjacent fields, the only observers. Then, as the path wound round the hillside, Martha caught a glimpse of grey water and a huge dark shape beyond the high hedgerows. She parted some wet, leafy branches and peered through. The doctor pressed his face up beside her to see. Oh, my God! Martha felt sick taking in the sheer size of the beast lying on the shore far below. Only the upper body was protruding from the muddy swell of the lake, but that alone was as long as a playing field. Men were milling around it. The creature's corpse lay on its side, two huge clawed paws clasped together in some sick parody of prayer. Its neck was as long and thick as a battleship, leading to a set of hideous jaws, each twice as long as a train carriage and crammed with ivory spikes. But above the jaws was little more than a mangled mess of blackened bone. 
Most of the heads seem to have been ripped clear away. So, uh, what do we think it died of? Martha deadpanned. The doctor puffed out a long breath. <sighs> Didn't think anything could kill a scarison. A what? A cyborg animal. Part organic, part metal. Part reared, part engineered. Martha shivered. You've met one before? Well, a little one, the doctor confessed. You could say I got under its feet. But that was ages ago, up in Loch Ness. About 70 years from now. Loch Ness? Martha stared at him, incredulous. You mean, there really is a monster? Onwards we trot, called Victor, who was waiting for them further down the track. I feel a view up close is in order, don't you? The doctor was about to follow when Martha held him back. If this garrison is a cyborg, then who made it? Zygons, said the doctor, his dark eyes troubled. And you've come up against Zygons too? Oh, yes. The ones I met never said anything about having two scarisons, so... Abruptly, he hurried away after Victor. Oh, no, no, no. This doesn't feel right. He turned and gave her a wide grin. Come on, then. You heard the man. Onwards we trot. Stealing herself, Martha jogged down with him to face the mauled monster. This uh, this kind of hits a lot of classic Doctor Who buttons. Uh, it's uh, it's got the Zygons in it, obviously, but this is not immediately apparent, or wouldn't be if they weren't plastered all over the cover, uh, and <laughs> <laughs> and in classic Doctor Who style in the title as well. Uh, but the book, if you ignore the title uh, and you ignore the cover, it starts off with a mysterious goings on down in Devon, I believe. Is it Devon? It's some part of rural England, which uh, you know is is so wonderfully Pertwee-esque that you can't help be sucked in by it. It's the tenth Doctor. Mm. Martha Jones uh, and yeah and strange things are afoot in rural England what's not to like I think you're exactly right uh, the, the, they did a big misstep by even mentioning Zygons because the book spends a lot of time trying to not tell you that the Zygons are the uh, main villain in the story and they even try to hide the fact that the Scarrison is actually in the story or, or, or multiple Scarrisons I believe I think there's even two of them floating around at one point um it, it's one of I, I think it's probably my only negative for this story that um, it could have benefited by not being called Sting of the Zygons and having you know one of those suckered creatures sitting there on the cover standing outside the TARDIS looking very Zygon esque um, because I've never really understood that you know when even during televised Doctor Who where they'll have you know Genesis of the Daleks or you know Attack of the Cybermen you know you know what you're going to get as soon as you put the DVD in. And it's the same thing with this. Why spend 40 pages hiding the fact that a Zygon's going to be there when everyone knows what it is? Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. I think you know, this book could have learnt a lot from Earthshock. You know, if Earthshock had been called Revenge of the Returning Avenging Cybermen, then you know, that first episode wouldn't have worked so well. And sometimes it's good to keep something back. Sometimes it's good not to know, but... You know, I suppose yeah. sticking the monster on the front sells books. I, I think Stevens tried to correct that a little bit, whether he's consciously done that or not, by utilising the shape-shifting features of the Zygons to great effect in this book. Because we can't see anything, because we're only reading it on the page, um, it, it makes the shape-shifting qualities of, of the Zygon race a lot more effective in the printed format. And there are certainly some really, you know, sort of laugh-out-loud type surprises when you find out what exactly a Zygon has been doing at a certain point in the book when it's revealed later on that it's actually a Zygon, it's not, you know, this thing or that thing or type of thing. So um, Stephen certainly tried to build in these sort of surprises into the novel. And what's also wrapped around the outside is 
you know, a wonderful, as you say, Pertwee-esque feel. Now, of course, it's virtually impossible not to make it feel like Terror of the Zygons, the fourth Doctor story. And, and you get a wonderful, rich sense of the landscape and the rolling hills um, that that was certainly part of the uh, Zygon story during the Fourth Doctor era. Um, I think even the story is set a little bit earlier, isn't it? Something like the 1920s or 30s, I believe. Yeah, or turn of the century, I think. Uh, I think there's a line, actually. Uh, it's 70 years before, they, they do reference it. I think. Absolutely, absolutely. I, I, I think what it's got going for it, too, is it has lots of wonderful comedy elements, which makes it a really easy book to read. You know, you just jump from page to page. There are such wonderfully vibrant characters in this book and you know the Zygons have always been a little bit comedic anyway and and I think Stephen plays up to that in this book that you know they're they're used to such wonderfully comedic effect while also being used as a very uh, serious menace there's a lot more Zygons in this story than we've ever seen before you know there's 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 whole uh, ships full of them basically yeah, and in the same way that we were talking earlier about uh, how companions can be expanded in books, I mean, they're given a bit more time. You know, the same is true of monsters, and uh, scratching beneath the surface of, uh, of what a monster is and looking at looking at why they are, or just you know, just expanding, just finding out a bit more about their culture. And uh, yeah, th- th- this book does a lot to, to flesh out the Zygon character. And I think of all the four books that we've reviewed for this episode, uh, Sting of the Zygons is is the best by far. It feels like like good old fashioned classic mm. Who. Yeah, so I I would certainly recommend giving uh, Sting of the Zygons a look. Uh, like like you said, Lisa, it's probably our favourite of all the four books we've read as part of this podcast. And uh, you know, it it's one of those books you can read, and it's not a chore. It, it was it it was a real pleasure to read. So if you're like us, uh, sort of new to the BBC, the new BBC book range, then uh, yeah, I'd recommend giving them a go. Uh, um, Zygons would be would be an excellent place to start if you like ten, if you like classic monsters, if you like classic Who uh, at a classic pace. Then yeah, stick one in your suitcase, take it on holiday. Who cares what people think? So there we go, four books and one audio book from the uh, Tenth Doctor range, covering a wonderful. Uh gamut of stories and genres and companion pairings and uh, different styles of story that I, I think cover a wonderful uh, range of what these novels have to offer and what, and what they contribute to the uh, Doctor universe. Yeah, there's, there's more to these books than first meets the eye. Well, s- some of them. Trevor turned towards the screen, knowingly, tellingly, and realised that it was the end of another Doctor Who podcast. He gave a coy look to Leeson across the room and nodded. Leeson understood that nod. He'd seen it all too many times here in the DWP camper van. It meant only one thing. Go and make the tea, Leeson. (laughs) And Leeson went and made the tea. And we said goodbye to another Doctor Who podcast for another week. So, until the digital files re-emerge from the ether that is the internet, we bid farewell to the DWP and waited with bated breath until the next episode. Trevor said, bye-bye, and Leeson said, cheerio. That was the Doctor Who Podcast, which you can find at thedoctorwhopodcast.com. If you have any feedback, please send it in to feedback at thedoctorwhopodcast.com. You can also find us on Twitter, Facebook, and via the Doctor Who Podcast forums. Thank you for listening. Take care.